This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Green Biz Analysts on their biggest takeaways from 2021, why delivery companies are peddling e-bikes, why divestment doesn't work and just won't die, and are entry-level sustainability jobs a needle in the haystack? We're going to party like it's 2022 this week on 350. It's December 17th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350, our final episode of 2021 as we wind down yet another year. And joining me in Midland Park, New Jersey, already thinking about ringing in the new, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. How are you, Joel? I am doing really well. The The, the year is winding down. The the calls and Zooms and meetings and are also winding down. I've got spaciousness in my schedule. It's it's starting to be, uh, you know, it's feeling a lot, it's starting to feel a whole lot like Christmas. So, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm excited about that. I'm um, a great time to do a little reflecting and, um, but also just excitement about the next the year ahead, at least from the perspective of, of our company and our community and, and all that's going on there. Um, it's going to be a great year, so I'm I'm excited to spend the next uh, couple weeks just uh, winding down and and you know just dialing down, but um, really gearing up for all that's yet to come. Yeah, I was you? just gonna say I'm I'm kind of winding up. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I don't have a lot of meetings for the for the next couple of weeks, but uh, I definitely have a lot of planning and thinking and. Uh, follow-ups to do on on the meetings I've had <laughs> over the last couple of weeks, so I have a lot of, of things in play. Excited, definitely excited about some opportunities that uh, the editorial team here will be having in in the coming months uh, to really make its mark in in um, new new beat areas and and just kind of prioritize and double down on some of the great work we're doing with um, with the existing ones. So excited about that! Got a really eager team and. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to to uh, having having a holiday, but but I love I've always loved to be to be able to sort of hunker down and do a lot of strategic thinking at this yeah. time of year. Well, um, and 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 part of what makes next year exciting is just the growth of our team, uh, the, mm-hmm. the editorial team, the conference team. I mean, we've got some great new people coming on board. We'll start announcing those at the, soon or at the, at the beginning of the year. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's uh, it's just a good time 
it's it, to be in green biz. It's not a good time to be in the world. Unfortunately, the world is not doing as well as we are as a company. But um, it, we do feel like uh, we're able to expand our influence, our reach, our impact. Uh, so uh, it's going to be a good year ahead. But you know what? I think we need to look first at the week in review. this week is a issue that's very familiar to our community, divestment. But uh, the take is pretty, is um, I think pretty unique. Um, and it really looks at why divestment doesn't work and just why it won't die. <laughs> Despite that, um, Adam Aston, one of our great senior writers and contributors, um, who you'll be seeing more of on different beats in, in the coming months, um, has done a great piece for the Greenfin Weekly, which looks at just the, the history of divestment, which which I will admit I didn't really know, but but we we know as um as as, as the activist community loves this topic. Harvard just in September joined the list of universities that will fully divest its fossil fuel assets um, from its big endowment, a fifty three billion dollar endowment. Wow, um, and universities have been really particularly pioneers here, um, but. I, I guess I, and I always thought that was a great thing, and, and maybe it is a great thing, despite whether or not it is working, and apparently it isn't working. And I guess, so I'm wondering, number one, what is it about it that's not working, <laughs> Joel? You, you were very closely involved with the development of this story. Um, what's the deal here? Well, first of all, Heather, uh, the focus here is is fossil fuel and divestment. Mm. Ah, so there's mm -hmm, lots of different mm -hmm. kinds of divestment. There's uh, obviously uh, a lot going on with uh, Israel and Palestine. That's not what this is about. Fair. Uh, divestment mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in other uh, social and uh, particularly social, but some environmental uh, things as well. This is really about uh, organizations like Harvard and many companies, religious endowments, major philanthropies, big insurance companies, municipal municipalities and, and some big sovereign wealth and pension funds who are all uh, currently or are promising to, to pull their funds from uh, coal, oil, and natural gas companies. And so far, it's been a pretty big movement. $40 trillion of divestment uh, has, has taken place, according to the advocacy group Stand.Earth. They've been tracking these trends for, for a while. And the emphasis on this is, you know, on reducing the political power of uh, oil and gas companies. But, you know, for, uh, you know, I think what Adam did really well here is to, you know, revisit why this strategy is taking place and, and, and in his case, why it's ineffective at best and possibly even counterproductive. So. To answer your question, first of all, when you're divesting, you're divesting in the secondary market, which means in the stock exchange. And so this this is already this, the money is already out there. The public offering was made sometimes decades ago, um, and, and so for every time you uh, you sell a share, someone has to buy it. That's the, well, how stock markets work. There's always a market for your stock, even if it's the sort of uh, it isn't obviously apparent that there's a big demand for it. Um, and so that means that the, the shares aren't going away, it's just transferring to somebody else. And, they, and Adam cites a whole bunch of research uh, papers and reports. And one of them says that, you know, the premise that for divestitures to have impact, they must change the cost of capital of affected firms. And their finding is that uh, when you sell a stock or, you know, thousands or millions of shares of a stock, 
the, the impact is too small to meaningfully affect real investment decisions. So I, I think that's that's one part of it. And the other is that um, the, the divestment can also backfire. That he says by thinning out the ranks of shareholders who might pressure boards, divestment concentrates ownership among those who are at best agnostic about climate impacts. In other words, if 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 the good guys, let's let's say the people who are trying to, you know, uh, move markets as they relate to decarbonization of the economy opt out, that leaves the, uh, you know, less good guys, let's say, to own the stock. And so therefore, there's less likelihood of pro-climate shareholder activism. And then finally, he says that equity sell-off can also have a trigger an unwanted domino effect, because as a company's share price falls, it becomes more attractive acquisition target for the private equity companies uh, uh, or funds or the state-owned oil companies like those in Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, who already control more than half of all global and, and gas and 90% of the reserves. And when you go from public to private ownership, you lose the disclosure and transparency, and the, the, those who are now owning the companies, the private equity companies, or the governments don't respond as well to external pressure. So. You know, that's the interesting part of this. Now, uh, he doesn't get that much into this, but uh, he talks about a couple of tools for investors to deploy and manage. But, you know, the debt markets, uh, uh, the how lenders, uh, the world's largest financial institutions, are, are looking at fossil fuel companies and either not lending to them or lending to them at higher rate. That's where it hurts. And I think that becomes a much bigger lever. But anyway, I think this is just a really interesting look at this. And as we try to do in Green Biz uh, across a lot of stories and writers is take some things that are often seen as as um, just assumptions and and question them and, and sometimes re refute them. And I, I love what Adam did here. And, uh, you know, again, this is as we look increasingly at, at sustainable finance and ESG, I think we're going to be doing more and more of this kind of reporting. So I, I have to ask a question that... that... <laughs> Then is divestment like if someone says they've divested from from their holdings in, in something like a fossil fuel company, are they in a sense somewhat greenwashing themselves then? I mean, like or or they can say that they don't hold the control, but is it kind of a, a little bit of a cop out? I mean, maybe. I mean, I would I would imagine that those who are doing that, the Harvards and others, are doing it for what they believe are the right reasons. Uh, they're not doing one thing and say, saying another. Um, they're you know they're they're walking their their talk and they says we're going to divest and we do. The question is is to what end? Does it really matter? And and or is it just sort of symbolic and and uh, feel good, if you will? Uh, you know. Oh, and by the way, I think this is non-trivial, and why this makes us maybe closer to the cop out that you're talking about. But but I'm st I still don't want to as ascribe any nefarious intent here. Is that fossil fuel investments have not been doing well relative to renewables and yeah. frankly the market in general. <laughs> and so it's kind of easy to say I'm going to opt out of things that aren't doing well, even yeah, though even it, it though you, it... you you may cloak it in some moral mm -hmm. uh, argument. So I think that's another piece of this. Um, but mm -hmm. you know those those things do change over time, and the yeah. market the markets do improve, etc. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to throw one other stat out there, which is just, I, which I'll just, I'm looking here at the chart in the story, you know, from between 2021 and 2022, the, the tally has just, the total assets under management committed to fossil fuel divestment, like definitely like 
doubled. <laughs> it was like a huge spike in that last 12 months. So that's kind of a cool, that's kind of cool. And the other chart on here that I think is, is goes to what I was just saying is that the cost of capital for fossil fuel companies versus renewable energy companies over the past decade um, has changed considerably where the cost of capital for renewables is, is, is sort of dirt cheap, whereas for fossil fuels, it keeps going up for particularly yeah. offshore oil and the price of, of, of money that companies have to pay to borrow in the markets is, is a lot higher. And so again, that makes them less competitive and it makes their stock in some ways potentially less valuable. So, uh, but one of the other things that's, that over time is going to make it less valuable is uh, the rise of um, electrified transportation, and, and that includes e-bikes. And that brings us <laughs> to a story that you did, Heather, called e-bikes, the uncelebrated hero of last mile delivery. And also another story that we ran this week from, uh, from Carlos Pardo at the Numo Alliance that asks, when is an e-bike not a bike? So... <laughs> Heather, discuss. <laughs> okay, yeah, throw that one way out there. Uh, so, yeah, I've been uh, helping with our mobility coverage uh, for the last couple months uh, as as I consider what we're going to be doing with some of the the coverage here, and it just it just made me think. Um, I was looking at some numbers for e bikes, and and several of my friends have bought them. I don't know if you have a lot of them out in California, but they're they're pretty popular here in in suburban New Jersey because they help with they help you to sort of not have to take your car a few miles away. You can you can take a different sort of trip. Um, people are getting out and trying to get more exercise, and so it became a big thing during the pandemic. In fact, twenty twenty one was pretty. It was a pretty breakthrough year for. For the category in general, um, the the estimated re revenue for the category is something like thirty seven billion dollars, just shy of that, um, which is a compound annual growth rate of of more than twelve percent over the previous year. And they're looking at you know some of the projections are looking at like a fifty three billion in within three years. So we have these these vehicles out there that are two wheeled or maybe sometimes three wheeled, like some of them are tricycles rather than four. So. What I, I got to thinking, you know, what does this mean for the last mile, right? Because we have a lot of uh, companies investing in the vans, the electrified vans. Amazon, of course, with its 100,000 vehicle purchased from Rivian. Um, tons more of the delivery and logistic companies, UPS, FedEx, DHL, of course, are all investing in the vans. But, but I've noticed increasingly uh, that they're also investing in these cargo bikes, um, DHL has actually been doing this for a number of years, pretty aggressively um, since like 2016, where they're they're testing pedal powered and battery powered. Some of them are, are both um, in urban environments, right? Neighborhoods. Um, it started out in Europe, where there's a lot of cities with very teeny tiny little streets, and how do you get a van down the street? And you you know you you walk it in or you bike it in, but bike in a package. And um, so while I'm I'm thinking about the e-bike phenomenon. I just noticed that more, more companies um, are starting to test out the cargo aspects of this. It's more in Europe than, than here in the U.S., but there's a couple of pilots, one in New York and one in uh, Miami, of all places, where the, the companies are, are testing these out um, in terms of getting packages to, to people more um, quickly. And commercial um, is, is a big focus of this. But you know, the proposition, um, you know, for e-bikes is pretty interesting. Like from a general 
point of view, um, like thinking collectively about the category, if e-bikes handled more of these short distance trips, uh, particularly for like commuting, um, it would, could cut emissions by 12% compared with like existing cars. Um, and then the packaging companies, the logistics companies, I should say package delivering com companies, are citing even better efficiencies and, and, and results like there's a study out of the University of Westminster that suggested that e-cargo bikes can help these companies uh, deliver faster, right? So they can get in and out more quickly, up to 60% faster than vans, producing 90% less carbon dioxide than diesel vans and 33% less than electric vans. So they're comparing them even to electric vans. So it's just, I, I just kind of, my brain went off <laughs> in yeah. this direction. Well, that's, yeah. we, lo we love it when that happens, Heather. But, um, I, I, you know, if you step, broaden, step back from the uh, delivery part, just to e-bikes in general, I mean, it's really a phenomenon right now. There were more yeah. than twi twice as many e-bikes uh, sold in the United States uh, this year or last year, I guess, than um, electric vehicles. Uh, exactly. About 500,000 yeah. versus 210,000 plug-in cars, according to one estimate. Um, I mean, I know people who are, who are getting e-bikes and love them. I, I'm sort of having a little FOMO uh, there. I think at some point I'm destined to do that as well. Uh, although I love to walk. And so that's, I, yeah. I don't want to cut back on that part of my, uh, my exercise regime. Uh, but these are, these are really uh, cool things and they're, you know, lightweight and, and, they, and they move quick enough to get somewhere. The, one of the questions is, and this is this, this other piece on when is an e-bike, not a bike, right? You know, some of these things <laughs> are now that there's a, there's one particular company called Van Moof. That's uh, they, some dubbed the Apple of, of bikes, uh, they unveiled the so-called hyperbike that's uh, trying to sort of bridge the gap between a, a traditional e-bike and a car, which is, so it goes faster uh, and, uh, you know, it's a little, little more horsepower, I guess. Um, but the question is, you know, do are they allowed in this in the same uh, level of scrutiny? Because e-bikes generally, uh, riders don't require helmets and some of the other uh, speed uh, limits and things may not apply as much to them. Um, are these, you know, heftier hyper bikes like uh, Van Moof uh, are, are actually going to sort of ruin the party for everybody by causing, uh, you know, going in places where bikes typically go, but going fast and bowling people over or annoying people at, at minimum. This is one of these uh, sort of growing pains that um, that I think we're going to have to go through. And, uh, you know, how are cities going to cope with bikeways and other infrastructure um, where walkers or traditional non-powered bicyclists or foot-powered bicyclists may be vulnerable and or, or even endangered. So, uh, you know, we see these all over the, all of them when, when electric vehicles came along, which we worried about and probably still do worry about their, their uh, lack of making noise. And should, you know, will they potentially be uh, uh, hitting people who are unaware that there's a vehicle, uh, you know, upon them? And, and so, you know, all these changes require uh, technologies of all sorts. And we've gone through this with every major technology change. Uh, are going to require some social and in some cases legal definitions and, and new rules. Definitely. And, uh, you know, and even just some, some like very serious planning, because if you think about the bike lanes right now in most cities, they're not that wide. And many of the cargo vehicles that um, the companies like DHL and FedEx are touting are trikes 
or even in some case, they have four wheels. <laughs> they're, they're, they're kind of, they're quote bikes, but where are they really? <laughs> and so that, to the point of this other story. Um, so there's definitely like that whole, you know, like how much of the road are they going to take up? They can go ahead and park in a loading zone. They can park, they can get in and out of places technically that, that other, that van couldn't, van can't pull up on a park, you know, on a sidewalk, but, um, for sure it's like a big planning challenge too. Um, yeah. Well, a bike should have two wheels. That's the definition of bike, which is yes. from bicycle, which is, you know, by is two. And, and so we may be uh, reinventing or, a, you know, three-wheel bike or a e-trike. E I don't know what we're going to get into. And gun, I don't know. You know. Lord knows what we're going to call the electric four-wheel, um, you know, bicycle-like thing. Probably a car. I don't know. <laughs> All of this is... DHO uh, calls them cubicycles or something like cubicycles. that. Cubicycles. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, <laughs> let's agree that for now... All this is a moving target. Mm, good one. Good one. So should we talk about our last story? Yes, let's do that. And this is, uh, has been the hot story of the week here on greenbiz.com uh, from Katie Cross over at Duke University. She manages the, the, the Center for Energy Development and the Global Environment. She's been focusing for, for years uh, on careers and in sustainability. And she writes a piece called Our Entry-Level Sustainability Jobs and Needle in a Haystack. And, and the premise is something we've talked about a bunch before, which is that there is this huge and growing demand for sustainability professionals. It's, it's not out of the blue, but really over the past year, two years, certainly, but a year in pandemic world primarily, uh, it's just really ramped up. And it's not about the pandemic necessarily. It's really about the rise of, of, of ESG and the need for, for carbon disclosure and the, you know, more and more companies committing to net zero and have to, having to figure out what that looks like. And the general dispersion of sustainability into the various business units and functions within companies takes a lot of people. And yet, you know, this, these, some of these are relatively new fields or new jobs in, in companies, and they're looking for people with five to 10 years of experience and a job that hasn't <laughs> yeah. existed that long. And, and so oh. Katie, Katie rightfully questions the, the, the sanity of that and the practicality of that. And from the perspective of the job seeker, um, you know, how do you think about that? And how do you navigate that world where people are looking for things that may or may not exist, the proverbial needle in a haystack. Yeah. And I guess rule one, don't let the HR team write your job description, yeah. maybe would be the, you know, I think it, it just is something that I think about a lot as a manager. Like if I'm looking for an, a new person, what is it I really need? And and who do you really want? And as especially like for me, part of this is about the whole um, diversity movement too. And, and what do you expect out of at a, at a candidate? And are you in t unintentionally biasing and or cutting out a whole slew of people that that you could be could be wonderful, have the skills to do the job, but not the quote experience or the the past you know CV or resume or whatever you want to call it? Um, I love this story because that and that as I was reading it, you know, part of the thing that I that I that was mentioned in this in this piece that that. I really empathized with was, you know, hey, this this generation knows what's going on. They've lived with it. They they are probably more attuned to some of the things um, and how the, the 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 you know the communities and consumers feel about this than those of us who have been in it, who have been very close to it for longer. So number one, they have that skill that others don't, and and 
right now we're not we're not appreciating that. But one of the things that I really um, one of the pieces of advice that that Katie offered that that I really appreciated was the the idea that these career paths are nonlinear, right? So looking for places to build the skills, whether it's going to a procurement job, even though it doesn't have sustainability in the title, and learning about the the things that could be affected by materials choices and water and on all these things and really building that skill set in another place before quote getting a sustainability job in your title or even um she suggests working on policy programs or um, with an ngo uh, and 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 getting that sort of cross-pollination which actually i've seen more and more i think that's a great idea like that we should have more cross-pollination between the public sector and private sector in in sustainability like there's just great kind of and i think that's happening more um, but I think the people that are do have that, both sides of that experience are really particularly effective. So um, she's really good some some good yeah. advice in here. Well, I mean that, that goes to something that I've been telling uh, advising people for a long time, which is uh, you know put put glibly, uh, sustainability is way too important to be left to sustainability departments. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. what but uh, I'm going to do a little digression here, but to make a point. Um, and there's an, an analogy here to sustainability. Uh, when I was at the, at Berkeley in the journalism school, um, I, I was the last year uh, that the J School at Berkeley offered a BA in journalism. Um, wasn't because of me. I didn't ruin it for everybody. They had already decided that, that that they said, you know what? If you want to be a journalist, take some writing courses. Sure, absolutely, but. Go learn something. Go major in science or history or English or French or physical education or whatever it is, and and then bring you know once you know something, then deploy your journalistic skills towards that. And because general reporters, sure, there's always a demand for that, but newspapers, magazines, websites are looking for people who who know something about something. Certainly, we are when we hire reporters and editors. And, and in the same way, I, I've said, you know, go, you know, whether it's your, either you're still in school or, or, or look, or already in the in the workforce, you know, go learn something, learn, you know, finance or HR, or supply chain, or, or fleets or real estate or marketing and communications, um, and then go deploy, you know, your green gene uh, somewhere using that skill set. So that's 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 one point I think I want to make. The other thing is that. You know, Katie refers to this as a needle in a haystack. I think I I would call it ships in the night. And and let me explain that. Uh, on one hand, the employers uh, use all kinds of different titles. She she points out that you know these entry level jobs could be listed as coordinators, analysts, associates, fellows. She lists a bunch of uh, different real jobs that crossed her deaths, a project development analyst, a engagement coordinator, a climate research associate, an investment analyst, a, you know, a 12 month intern at, at, at one large uh, cosmetics company. Um, so figuring out which of these jobs are quote unquote sustainability jobs from the employer's perspective, is, uh, I mean, fr from the job seeker's perspective can be challenging. From the employer's perspective, and this is something you 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 said, and I'll but I'll put a, a finer point on it. Uh, companies searching for a certain kind of person with a certain level of experience probably doesn't exist, and it also excludes a lot of the uh, diverse candidates that companies say they want. Uh, a lot of you know black and brown uh, job seekers who may not have come into 
uh, the sustainability field and who may not have five to 10 years of experience, but have uh, great uh, talents, uh, smart, uh, motivated, um, different perspective perhaps, which can be extremely valuable. And how you go out and call these jobs, how you, uh, the kinds of requirements uh, that you need to get these jobs and where you search for them can also be a challenge. So I think, you know, companies are calling uh, calling it differently. They're not necessarily looking in the right places, and they're, they're, they may not be uh, creating criteria that attract the people that they actually want to attract. And I think this is going to be a, a big challenge going forward that companies are going to need to figure out. Hey everyone, it's Heather. As the year winds down, we're interested in hearing from you for our first podcasts of the new year. If you're willing, give us up to 45 seconds of audio on one of the two following questions. What's your biggest takeaway from 2021? Or what are you excited about in 2022? Then email it to us at 350 at greenbiz.com by January 3rd. Again, what's your biggest takeaway from 2021? Or what are you excited about in 2022? Thanks. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you have any questions, again, 350 at greenbiz.com. Happy holiday. Joel billboarded at the top of the program, we would like to close our episode this week, our final episode of the year, with reflections from our wonderful analyst team here at GreenBiz, as well as our, the rest of our editorial team. So listen, uh, think ahead, and uh, we're so looking forward to uh, engaging with you in 2022. I'm Jim Giles, Vice President for Net Zero here at GreenBiz. And my big takeaway for 2021 concerns a couple of really significant developments in the voluntary carbon markets. The first one is about just the size of the markets. That's set to grow to $1 billion by the end of this year. That's a 60% increase in a single year. So a really big jump in the size of the market. But within that data, there's a signal about price that I think is worrying. So the average price for a ton of carbon dioxide on the carbon credit markets is less than $3. That produces a worrying temptation for companies just to buy relatively cheap offsets in order to reach some kind of climate goal, rather than making the tough internal decisions about emissions reductions that they really need to be making. Now, the second big development I wanted to highlight gets to that point of how companies are using offsets. In the last couple of months, the Science-Based Targets Initiative released new and long-awaited guidelines for what constitutes a high-quality net-zero target. And the initiative was very clear that only the last little bit of emissions, around 10% or so, can be offset using carbon credits in order for a company to claim to have reached net-zero. So it's a very restrictive vision around how offsets can be used. The big question now, and something I'll be looking at next year and the, in the years ahead, is do companies actually sign up to this vision? Many, many companies have said they want to reach net zero and said they're serious about doing it, but the SBTI's prescription about how to reach net zero are really tough, and that's going to have implications for corporate strategy and the offsets market 
And that will be something that's super interesting to watch in the years ahead. I'm Teresa Lieb, and I'm the Food Systems Analyst at GreenBiz. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is the need to partner more closely with farmers to make good on regenerative agriculture commitments. There are so many companies out there now who are planning to improve farm practices, it's becoming almost impossible for me to keep track of all of them. They range from early adopters like General Mills and Danone to Cargill, Nestle, Walmart, McDonald's, you name it. But in the end, it's still the farmers and ranchers who do the work and take most of the risk. So I'd like to see more commitments translated into fair partnerships that make long-term investments in farms, offer low-risk contracts and grand premium pricing. That would distribute the heavy lifting more equally between farmers and the rest of the supply chain. So if 2021 was the year of regenerative agriculture commitments, I'd like to make 2022 the year of I-level partnerships. I'm Sarah Golden, Senior Energy Analyst at GreenBiz. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is how we need to get better at talking about the true value of clean energy and energy resilience. For too long, we focused on the upfront costs of clean energy technologies. While wind and solar is cheaper than carbon emitting resources to build, supply chain crunches and the global energy crisis has reshaped some of our economic assumptions this year. If the clean energy community focuses too narrowly on the upfront economic benefits, it misses the costs of failing to act. For example, the cost of losing energy when relying on an increasingly unreliable grid or the cost of unchecked climate change. So let's get clear on the economic imperative to decarbonize and not let incumbent energy forces co-opt the narrative. I'm Suzuki, Circular Economy Analyst at GreenBiz, and my biggest takeaway from 2021 is that policy begets unexpected progress. It's been a momentous year for circular policy, and that's especially evident in the right to repair movement. From mandated repairability scores for electronics in France to the passage of the very first statewide electronics right to repair bill in New York, it has been a truly historic year. And joy-inducing though legislation passage is, what excites me most is the unexpected ripple effects that follow. Namely, the change of heart amongst heavy hitters in the electronics industry. After years of active resistance, both Apple and Microsoft have agreed to make repair parts and manuals more accessible for consumers. And this wasn't required by law. This was of their own volition. For those in the know, this reversal was a shockingly huge deal. Of course, legislative movement is not the only driver here. Years of activism, pressure, and hard work have helped catapult these wins for the right to repair movement. But the splash of policy creates waves. While the line from bill to brand action is not always a straight shot, the undeniable impact of policy change remains clear in 2021. I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor at GreenBiz. My two beats here revolve around agriculture and nature. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is how connected these two topics actually are. Food companies are starting to look at agriculture as an extension of nature and an opportunity to encourage biodiversity, a way to use the Earth's natural systems to sequester carbon while also growing enough food to feed billions of people. Whether it's a regenerative agriculture program from some of the biggest names like Walmart and Danone, or a 28-company initiative encouraging agroforestry for vanilla cultivation in Madagascar, nature has come to the forefront. And it's not just in the food world. 
tech companies have started heavily funding projects in nature and biodiversity. Apple invested in protecting a mangrove forest in the Philippines, and Amazon partnered with the Nature Conservancy to work with 3,000 local farmers to restore parts of the Amazon forest. Financial institutions like banks and investment firms have also started to investigate how much nature factors into their portfolios, are working on putting a dollar value on it, and finding the opportunities for profit. As I look for 2022, I hope every business will start to evaluate its reliance on nature, and they should have better tools to do it. The Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures plans to release a framework to assess nature-related risks to businesses next year, and the Global Reporting Initiative has also promised an update to its biodiversity standard. This is the first step for protecting nature to become just as integral a part of sustainability discussions inside companies as climate or carbon emissions. I'm Sherry Totoki, Director of Startup Programs at GreenBiz. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is that climate tech funding has reached a critical inflection point. Climate tech startups raised $32 billion in 2021, more than ever before. We are seeing historic climate investors like Energy Impact Partners close larger commitments, such as their $1 billion gigafund. More corporate venture capitalists are entering the climate space, such as Volkswagen's $355 million for decarbonization, Microsoft's $1 billion Climate Innovation Fund, and of course, Amazon's $2 billion Climate Pledge Fund. Even longtime investors are entering the space, such as TPG's $5.4 billion Climate Rise Fund. Where is all this money going? While there is investment across many industries, two with continued growth are electric vehicles and carbon capture and utilization. Mobility sector deals made up about 50% of total funding in the first half of this year. We saw a boom around electric mobility companies with a record number of exits, such as Rivian, Lucid, EVgo, and BP's recent acquisition of Ampli. We also saw increased funding into carbon capture, utilization, and accounting. Companies such as Pachama, Persephone, and 12 raised large Series A and B, and we saw the growth of carbon funds such as Chris Saka's $800 million lower carbon capital and Elon Musk's partnership with the XPRIZE Foundation to award $100 million into carbon removal. I expect to see continued growth in both of these sectors given the passing of the infrastructure bill and its investments in the EV charging and carbon capture and removal technologies. My name is Lauren Phipps. I'm the Vice President and Senior Analyst on the Circular Economy. And my biggest takeaway from 2021 is that companies aren't progressing quickly enough if they intend to meet their 2025 packaging commitments. Hundreds of brands and retailers were celebrated when they set these targets and signed on to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's global commitments. They pledged to make packaging 100% recyclable, compostable, or reusable by 2025. But at the end of 2021, it's becoming clear how soon that is, and early data have shown insufficient progress. In fact, a recent Gartner report predicts that 90% of sustainable packaging commitments won't be met by 2025. And I think it's important to remember that this isn't just a conversation about materials and waste. Greenhouse gas emissions from plastic production are set to outpace those from coal by 2030, according to Beyond Plastics. Now, reaching any of these targets will require actions beyond individual companies. Investment in infrastructure, scaling collection, extended producer responsibility laws, among other legal interventions. But they're also incumbent upon brands designing out unnecessary single-use packaging in the first place. 
I think 2022 will be the year of accountability. Packaging producers will either need to step up or they'll be held accountable for falling short on their pledged ambitions. I'm John Davies, Senior Vice President at GreenBiz, and I lead the GreenBiz Executive Network, our member-based peer-to-peer learning forum for sustainability professionals. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is that sustainability programs are getting stronger than ever, even when companies are faced with a global pandemic. We're just wrapping up the data collection phase of our biennial State of the Profession survey, and according to more than 750 respondents from companies with revenues over $1 billion, they say teams are growing. 76%, more than three quarters, said that headcount for the sustainability department increased. That's almost a 20-point jump from 2020 and a 35-point jump from 2018. That's right, four years ago, only 41% had said the headcount increased, and that jumped to 76% today. We'll have more of these encouraging results when we release our State of the Profession report in spring of 2022. I'm Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz, and I cover the circular economy with a sprinkle of consumer goods and retail. My biggest takeaway from 2021 is that for the circular economy to work and have a positive impact on climate, companies must make circular practices a bigger part of their operations. For years, there have been pilot program launches that offer insights into how circular business models can work, but that's not enough. Let's zero in on fashion. A laundry list of brands have partnered with resale companies ThreadUp, Trobe, and the Renewal Workshop to extend the life of garments. They clean them, make any necessary repairs, and make them available for another person to buy and wear them. But if the fashion companies are still making just as many new clothes with materials that are harmful to the environment, I'd argue that their circular efforts aren't having as big of an impact as they could. In 2022, I hope to see companies take the step to make circular practices and products a bigger part of their operations. And that's our 350 podcast for this week and this year. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the things we've mentioned in this episode. While you're over there on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every week, and it's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. You can find us at 350 at greenbiz.com. As we said, Heather and I will be laying low for the rest of the year, but we'll be back on January 5th with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Have a safe and joyous holiday season. See you next year. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses striving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.